blessed songs. Mommy's here, Daddy's gone. Broken promises, gin and rye. All the mean and hurtful things that make baby Jesus cry. Hello and welcome to Movies with Gravy, a podcast where we discuss under-the-radar new releases and the films we believe inspired them. My name is Billy Ray Bruton and I am your host and antagonist for the next 90 minutes or so. Joining us today is a man who needs some introduction. He's a longtime critic for Entertainment Weekly where you can experience his consistent rallying cry for the series The Good Fight. And he's a frequent guest on the Screen Drafts podcast where he serves as my podcast husband. He's what TV Guide would look like in human form. Mr. Darren Franich. Darren, you're here! Billy Ray, I'm honored. I feel like I've been promoted. Usually uh, usually we're con- we consider each other arch nemeses, but but, but, but podcast husband That's right. is like we we've have have we made peace now? Is 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 that what you're telling me? I feel like every good relationship, every good marriage has to have its series of ups and downs. So, <laughs> podcast husband just seems appropriate. <laughs> well, c- certainly honored. Of course, we've had some great um, marital spats over on screen drafts. Uh, I'm I'm excited for tonight. This this is going to be, I think, a more um, agreeable conversation about cinema. I think I'm not sure, but I I, I feel as if there's going to be less sparring over who is more inhuman than who on tonight's podcast. Unlike in some of our previous skirmishes. I would imagine so, because, you know, for folks who know what the screen draft format is, I mean, there's such a large pool of options from which to choose when you're embarking on a screen drafts draft. Here, we know what we're choosing. But yes, it might get a little... The, the inspiration picks portion isn't really a place to get contentious. It's just more about a place to, to kind of help... Uh, craft a, a cool little movie mixtape. Yeah, um, and it's funny, mixtapes was really on my mind, partially because, you know, in our past podcasting marriage, we have discussed the, the concept of mixtape movies before, um, but also because the idea of a mixtape kind of sort of factors in a little bit to the movie we're going to talk about tonight. And it's just an interesting concept to discuss in terms of what you do at this podcast, where you're kind of like bringing in one thing and then bringing in other things that are kind of similar to it. Um, At least partially because more and more the concept of of a mixtape, it's like so retro that I feel like it's kind of coming back around maybe. Like I I think that maybe the mixtape idea has a similar fascination for young people today to maybe what vinyl had for like, my generation in the mix of like the CD era. I don't know. As I'm saying, as I realize that like young people always allegedly still care about vinyl. So maybe that's not the case, but I think what, what you do here, mixtapes, I think it's helpful. I think it'll send people on a good journey, hopefully from the first movie onto uh, other good movies. Yeah. That's, that's the goal. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's really about, you know, turning folks on to films that they hopefully have either not heard about or haven't thought about. And, uh, and giving, you know, because everybody gets in that mood occasionally where you just want to, like, plop down in front of the TV all day long and just, like, get on a wavelength. And so this is for folks who want to do that. And maybe that wavelength is something really sad and depressing. Or maybe it's something really uplifting. Who the hell knows? Um, <laughs> but, you know, before we get into the film, I have to ask you a very serious question. 
Okay. It's the most serious question I can ask a guest on this show. Okay. So let's say that you are driving through the South and you stop at a random Cracker Barrel. Um, have you before we get before I go any further? Have you eaten at a Cracker Barrel before, Darren? Yes, I have. In fact, I believe I ate uh, at a Cracker Barrel on a road trip through the South, uh, either f- going from Nashville to New Orleans or possibly from New Orleans to Atlanta. But yes, I've, I'm familiar with the experience. I have lived a life. I've been to Cracker Barrel. Perfect. Okay, so let's say that you're on that road trip. You stop at a Cracker Barrel. You sit down. You order your food. And the waitress says, would you like gravy with that? How do you answer? Um, I think I would say yes because you I'm think just kind of a, I'm just kind of a I'm kind of a say yes person in those kinds of situations. Like, I don't think of myself as someone who likes gravy, but if she were to be asking that, I would consider that well, probably having gravy with this is the social norm. So I think I'd say yes. Okay, and then let's say that she continues the conversation and says. White gravy, brown gravy, how do you go? Wow, multiple colors of gravy. Are those the only two options, or is there more? Uh, well, you could, I, I'm sure that the cooks at Cracker Barrel could whip up a red-eye gravy if you asked for it. Um, I'm, I'm really revealing my lack of awareness when it comes to most forms of gravy. I'll go brown gravy. Okay, that's, that's a good option. That's, that's the good choice there. You made the right choice. We can continue with the podcast. If, if um, for no other reason, white gravy just seems like the vanilla choice to me, maybe just in terms of like actual coloration. So like, let's do something different. Let's, 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 let's shake this up. Well, you know, I find that the, the brown gravies, they have a richer taste to them, whereas the white gravies have a peppery, spicier taste to them. Took the words right out of my mouth. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, when I thought about you being on the show, I thought, I bet Darren really knows a thing or two about gravy. <laughs> one of one of many times that I've let you down, Billy Ray. <laughs> you know, it's it's okay. Not everybody spent has spent, you know, genius level hours in a Cracker Barrel like I have. I have not. And in fact, I'm, I, I, what is the closest Cracker Barrel to where we inhabit here in Los Angeles, Billy Ray? Would that be accessible with a, like, multi-day drive? or? Oh, yeah. For a while there, there was one that was about a 90-minute drive outside of L.A. But they shut it down about three years ago. So I'm not sure at the moment where the closest one is. I'll be going home soon back to Alabama for a few weeks. And so I will be going to the Cracker Barrel literally every goddamn second I have free. (laughs) And I'll be getting the same goddamn thing. (laughs) I have to say, like, maybe it's just like pandemic talk, but you saying that, Billy Ray, I'm like, man, as soon as I get the vaccine, like, we're all going there. We're all going to the Cracker Barrel. What's What's the closest Cracker Barrel to the Billy Ray Bruton... Alabama household or uh, are, are there multiples are there multiples? oh there are multiples now I can go down the mountain into Scottsboro and I can go to the Cracker Barrel there or I can go down the mountain to Fort Payne and go to the Cracker Barrel there world's Options. my oyster world's my Options. oysters incredible yeah. something to look forward to it is it is and uh you know gravy is just the best and uh, Cracker Barrel celebrates it, and so Cracker Barrel has my heart. It has my heart. Um, now, 
Maybe let's find out if this movie has our collective hearts. Um, the movie that we're going to be discussing is called Shoplifters of the World. And it is a Smiths-centric film, I guess is the best way to say it. But before we dive into our discussion, I'm going to play a little clip from the film. And it goes to something like this. Pre-processed pop. Wham. Whitney. White Snake. Whoa, 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 buddy boy. Leave Whitney out of this. It's all the same. But it isn't. Isn't it? What's the message? Dance, party, have fun, get laid. Sounds good to me. It's not reality. Reality sucks. Music is an escape. This music is salvation. <sighs> Give me father, for I have sinned. I've let the record run out. All right, Maestro, what's next? You pick. On oh, DJ's choice? How novel. All right. This one's for you, kid. He may not be sweet, he may not be tender, but he is certainly a hooligan. Play the song. Gods of metal, forgive me, it's another one by the Smiths. It's Denver, 1987, and the Smiths have just broken up. For a group of friends getting ready to embark on the next phase of their lives, this is heartbreaking. Cleo, played by Helena Howard from Madeline's Madeline, is stuck in a dead-end job and can't figure out what to do with her life. Sheila and Patrick have dated since middle school but are at a crossroads since Patrick is clearly gay and Sheila wants to have sex, which Patrick hates. And Billy is getting ready to head off to the army and the four friends reunite for one final night of debauchery, the same night when Dean, played by Boyhood's Eller Coltrane, holds up a radio station DJ, played by Joe Manganiello, at gunpoint, forcing him to play the Smiths' music all night long. As the group of four party hop throughout Denver, and as the gunman and DJ come to understand one another, Shoplifters of the World attempts to correlate the lives of these friends with the disillusion of what this film would proudly proclaim as the greatest band in the history of popular music. So, Darren, to start us off, I'm going to ask you a question. Seeing as how the Smiths were known for being rebellious and transgressive, does Shoplifters have that same nature, or is it merely all soundtracked up with no place to go? Definitely not rebellious, nor nor transgressive. Definitely great soundtrack. Um, I'm not even the world's biggest Smiths fan. I I I'm more of like the classic like little brother to a really big Smiths fan. But so as a result, Morrissey's entire career and the Smiths like specifically was a big part of my youth. Um, so like definitely hell of a soundtrack to build a movie around. And I mean, not just like the movie's concept, but even a lot of the dialogue drawn directly from either Morrissey or Oscar Wilde, as I think, as I think requoted by Morrissey. Um, so like the Smith side of it can't complain about, but yeah, this is definitely not one of those movies that is capturing the spirit of the music it's about so much as it is just celebrating the fandom around it, I think is how I would say it. Yeah. It, it's very much a hangout film um, for the most part. And that, so this is really two films in, in a sense. You, the, the one side of this film is the hangout session where you're following these free, these four friends around Denver. The other film in this film is the stuff at the radio station with Eller Coltrane and Joe Manganiello. And the two, of course, do tie together, but they feel very separate to me in this film. They, they, they almost feel like they're, 
I don't know, almost going for two different things. And sometimes it feels like maybe they don't work together. Well, do, do you have a favorite half of the film between those two? Yeah, it, it is the hangout portion, and which isn't a surprise. I, I tend to enjoy hangout films. Um, and, and it's not that I dislike the stuff at the radio station. I think the stuff at the radio station is, is somewhat compelling. And it's just so, like the stuff with the kids hanging out feels so real. But then the stuff at the radio station just feels like such a movie thing to have. Um, well, uh, this is not just to be contrarian, Billy Ray, I swear, but I actually kind of prefer this stuff at the radio station. Oh. Um, I, I do see what you're saying about, like, the hangout side of the movie. Once it gets to the kind of big party scene, that's kind of the, the central part of their night, and you have those four characters are kind of pairing off with each other and pairing off with other people. And, you know, the, like, that to me is kind of maybe the high point of what you're talking about, just as far as being like, we're really kind of capturing a night in the life here. Um, But even though it doesn't quite achieve what it's going for, or even doesn't, like totally doesn't achieve it, the radio station setup is so compelling to me because you have L.R. Coltrane as this kind of ultra Smiths fan, um, almost to a degree that I feel like, that aspect of the movie might almost need explaining to young people because he's such a hardcore Smiths fan that he hates all other kinds of music. Like he, you know, he's very dismissive of like Wang Chung and the kind of pop stuff that's on the radio. But specifically, he does not like the kind of heavy metal, Metallica, Judas Priest. The one time that uh, you know he to prove there's bullets in his gun, he shoots a coffee mug with Gene Simmons's face on it. So. He's this kind of like very dismissive kind of music fan. And then you have Joe Mangianello who, although he's into metal, he almost kind of becomes the like populist guy who's kind of trying to open up this very artistically minded music fan's perception of music. And, you know, maybe just because I work in like pop culture coverage, but I actually like that dynamic. I don't think those characters really clash as much as they could. Like, you know, what I'm describing is like the Oliver Stone talk radio version of this. And it, it very yeah. quickly becomes clear that like they're going to get along. But I, I did kind of like that contrast, maybe just because it kind of brought back to me the era when different kinds of rock music, you know, there wasn't quite the same sense of everyone getting along back then. And I, I, I sort of liked that spikiness that felt kind of unique and sort of in the spirit of, of the late 80s to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly, and speaking of that, you know, the film is set in 1987, and I, I, I really think they did a great job of sort of recapturing the late 80s. Uh, I think the production design is great. Obviously, the soundtrack lends itself to that as well. I think my issue, my biggest issue with the radio station scenes are, and, and maybe for the film in general, because this also applies, there really aren't any stakes to this film. Yes. Um, you know right from the beginning, like, nothing is going to happen at the radio station. You know Eller Coltrane isn't going to shoot Joe Manganiello, even when he shoots that Gene Simmons cup. Like, you just, you know that's not going to happen. And so there are really no stakes there. It, it's And then it's like, well, am I invested enough in this character to care whether or not he ends up meeting up with this girl again? And I don't know that I was. It's weird because it... But, the way I'm talking about this film, it sounds like I didn't enjoy it. I did enjoy this film. Like, I had a good time watching it. Like, I felt good watching it. I, I think a lot of that was probably the music. 
Um, and but man, is it shaggy? Man, is it got like it, it's just it is just it is so unpolished. And you know, the director, uh, I think his name is Stephen Kajak, who also wrote the screenplay. Uh, he's known primarily for uh, music docs. Like he did the Scott Walker, 30th Century Man. He did Stones in Exile. Uh, he even did a Backstreet Boys doc. And so he's mostly known for that, which really to me explains how he probably got access to all this amazing music. Uh, because I don't know how on a budget like this with a film like this, you get access to the songs he gets access to. Um, but I feel like he is so in love with the Smiths. I feel like he it's, this has to be such a personal fan for him or personal film for him. And that he's so in love with the Smiths that his love for the, for exposing people to the music of the Smiths is kind of overtaking his desire to tell a story about the yeah, music. I think that's fair. Well, and you know, it's it's tricky too because I mean, as as is stated multiple times in the movie during various characters' speeches about the Smiths, you know. The Smiths can make like pretty sad music, like sad and kind of painting in a lot of different emotional colors. Um, I mean, I, I think the movie argues, and with my limited knowledge of rock music, I think this is kind of true that like they were really purposefully expanding the emotional landscape of rock and roll, you know, just such in contrast to the kind of arena rock era, such in contrast to the sort of rock star iconography that came before them, even in contrast to punk rock. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that, like, the fact that the movie doesn't really get to those sort of, like, sadder, darker parts of the character's life, you know, there's a bit of a failure there. That said, again, once it kind of gets to the party, um, I just feel like that kind of is the moment when we kind of move beyond the foursome of the main characters who, you know, all get along pretty much and you don't really get a there's no sense that they might not get along i just like then the movie kind of really gets to pace where it's like okay there's more kind of people around there's more kind of narrative neurons sort of firing here and again to your point that's really when like the music that is playing throughout kicks into like the next level like you know in terms of all-time classic smith songs <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it is it, to say it's jam-packed with smith's classics would be a massive understatement um i i, I really found I, I did enjoy the performances quite a bit here and and i was when i went into this film i had my reservations because I do not think Eller Coltrane has uh, developed much as an actor since Boyhood. Um, you know, Boyhood was was what it was. It was a very specific kind of thing, and he worked in that film. I haven't seen him work in anything else since, so I was pleasantly surprised to see that this actually plays to his strengths. And I was like, okay, I like him in this. And I can't believe this is the first thing Helena Howard has done since Madeline's Madeline. That was that's a shock. Like I I just have taken for granted that she hadn't done anything since then. But I think they're great. I think Joe Manganiello's having a lot of fun here. I don't I don't know if he's got stuff on the cutting room floor or not. But Thomas Lennon must have shot for thirty minutes. <laughs> yeah, he's he's kind of in and out very very quickly. That that felt like a favor to me. Yes. Um, you know, it's funny, on the, um, just on the L.R. Coltrane front, his dialogue is unfortunately some of the worst dialogue. Like, it's it's kind of the most openly, you know, we are writing propaganda for the Smiths in the hopes that they give us, 
the rights to their songs kind of dialogue in the script. Yeah. But his dynamic with Joe Manginello is so interesting. Like Coltrane's face is just so distinctive and he is not emotive at all. And it kind of makes this interesting dynamic where he seems to be the alpha in the scenes with Joe Manganiello, who is an eight foot tall, like muscle man, like a, yeah. and a, a very charming eight foot tall muscle man. But I, I, I did have the, I, I really felt watching this movie in a way that I hadn't felt in his other stuff since boyhood that like, this is definitely a guy with some kind of charisma. I, I'm not sure if he's like someone you hand, you know, a really complex acting job too, but I, I just I really felt like he can do something interesting that nobody else can do, and I think in that way, it also felt like he was maybe capturing a little bit more of the mystique of the Smiths that I associate with them. Because I mean, um, you mentioned like Howard's great. Everyone in the, in the hangout corner of the movie seems like very lovey-dovey, very you know. Um, very much a Smiths fan, just sort of celebrating their life in a very open way, and I, I kind of liked the the, the gothier stuff that uh, Coltrane was was bringing to the movie. Yeah, yeah, I, I think what it is about Coltrane is his face doesn't move. I, well, at least I noticed that in this film, like his head will be moving, and like even when he's speaking, his mouth is moving, but no other part of his face is moving, and I don't know what that is. It's I, it's a true deadpan. Like, yeah. It really is like, and again, I, like, you know, it, it doesn't quite work in this movie. I think partially because his character is supposed to be like the one literally driving this plot at the start and kind of doing this sort of somewhat over the top thing. Um, but it's definitely like, I don't know, it, it made me wish there was maybe more of him together um, with uh, um, Howard uh, just because I, I feel like they could have maybe had some more room to build their very different acting styles around each other. <laughs> like yeah. she's 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 bringing her A level game to every part of the movie, doing lots of like Terrence Malick style, constantly dancing with myself stuff, which I, I think I think that adds to the movie significantly. But you kind of want to see that maybe bounce off Coltrane a little bit more. And as you said, the movie just kind of really separates those two halves quite a bit. I'm curious, are there any bands that you were so intensely attached to that you would be as devastated as these kids are about them breaking up? Okay, well, are you asking like me today or like me in high school? Would I have been? Yeah, think back. Think back to like when you were 17 or 18. Was there a band that if they had broken up, it would have destroyed you the way that the Smiths destroyed these kids? Like probably not. Partially because like I was less of a music guy than a like, you know, rent movies from Blockbuster guy. Roundabout way of saying was not a very cool guy. Um, But I mean, for, for me, like my favorite band in high school was Weezer. And like, you know, if Weezer had said that they'd broken up, it would have kind of been like, Okay, so what's what's Rivers Cuomo doing now? <laughs> like, 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 I'm not sure that like, you know, it's hard for me to really think of like, was there a band where each member felt so essential that if they were no longer together, it would be horrifying to me. Did did you have a band like that or like some, no, some band I'm, from 
from your youth who you loved this passionately and who by the way multiple friends of yours loved equally passionately not really i mean i've been a i've been an enormous bruce springsteen fan since i was really young so i mean that's 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 bruce has always been my guy but you know even had you know had bruce broken up when i was in high school with with if they had broken up i I just can't imagine being as devastated as these kids are, even though I would say, I certainly would say his music speaks to me as strongly as the Smiths speak speak to them. I just have never been in that position myself to be that devastated by something coming to an end like that. Do you think is part of that generational? Because I did did like how, you know, this movie's set in 87, and, you know, it, it kind of has to do some stitching here and there, but I did like how it kind of captured this idea of, you know, how is information moving throughout these people? You know, one person sees that the Smiths are broken up on television, has to has to tell her friends about that later that night, you know, and even the idea that like the centerpiece of the movie is taking over a whole radio station just to play the Smiths. Like, you know, that would have been crazy at the time because, you know, that just wasn't how radio worked. And I, 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 it did kind of bring it back to that feeling of, okay, was it just a little bit more like, you know, in a time when there wasn't access to everything, when you did love something like a band, did you just kind of love it a little more passionately? I don't know. That stuff really got me, thinking more with the movie more that kind of you know what was music fandom like at the time and to what extent was the movie kind of capturing that because it is just so different now in every way i mean you know how you consume music um how you consume the 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 musicians who you kind of love like you know when they're kind of rolling all the archival footage of the smiths you know think about if that was your only access to a band you loved and they weren't like tweeting and Instagramming all day. <laughs> like it might feel a little more special as a result, maybe. Yeah. I, the, the mixing of the archival footage of the Smiths was interesting. And, you know, I, I get, you know, they're trying to correlate the, the band dissolving with these friends and their last night and everything. I, at first it was a little distracting to me that they kept cutting to the archival footage. It grew on me eventually and just kind of, I don't know, it kind of just felt right with the film and, and what they were telling. Um, but yeah, I you know, this is a this is a complicated film for me because it's it's a rare thing when I enjoy watching a film so much, but then afterwards I'm like, what a fucking mess. Definitely. And, well, is that is that because I mean like do you feel like is the kind of midsection kind of party phase like do you feel like it, it kind of peaks then that, that was sort of my feeling was like I, yeah. I, I sort of wanted like I sort of wanted more of the party because like they get to the party and I, I think the gal throwing it is um Olivia Licardi who's from yes. the Deuce who I love so it was just yep. like that that's when I was like okay like we're firing on all cylinders here and there's personal dynamics coming into play people hooking up who shouldn't hook up and all that stuff like it almost feels like after that part you know, there, there's less that quality of, you know, we're really corralling all these people into a coherent narrative now. <laughs> what I think I would have honestly preferred, and again, this is me saying what I would have done. Obviously, I didn't make the movie. But it would have been more effective to me if we just focused on those four friends the whole night and we only heard what was happening at the radio station instead of cutting back and forth. That would have worked for me better. 
uh, just hearing what was going on while these four characters are sort of going about Denver and, and you know, and, and parting it up. Um, I, there was something, I think, that was just the cutting back and forth. Let's spend five minutes with these kids. Let's cut back to the radio. And it felt like every time we were cutting back to the radio station, we were essentially just cutting back to the exact same scene. Right. Well, again, there's just not the same level of build there because, you know, Joe Manginello is playing like a charming, nice version of a metalhead. Like, even though L.R. Coltrane has a gun, as you said, you're not really too scared of him actually using it in 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 a violent way. So there's not quite the same tension that even, you know, the hangout, even the most hangouty, chill least thrilling version of a it's our last night together story it is still their last night together like there is that kind of built-in you know um feeling of important things happening even even if you're just kind of watching them drink more or dance on the dance floor or explore their sexuality like you know that's there's just a, a little more of a you know contentful um feeling to that stuff i think well and you know the most interesting relationship in the whole film to me was the relationship between um, uh, Sheila and I think it's Patrick, which is, you know, the guy who is clearly, if he's not gay, he is certainly uh, very confused about his sexuality. And they've been together since middle school. And so they're both trying to figure out if they're going to keep the relationship going or what's going to happen there. Like his journey through the film was really interesting to me because. You know, his struggling with his sexuality, try, struggling with his identity there. And um, so so there are certainly some interesting sort of character threads that I was really into in the film. And not just that. Um, I was also uh, uh, super into... Uh, oh, God, I'm going to forget. I'm going to blank out on his name. The kid who's going to the army. I think his name is Billy, who's joining the army there. Yeah, played by Nick Krause, I believe. Yeah, yeah, but like even his sexuality was so interesting, like the way they were exploring that. Like that stuff was really fascinating to me and I think that's what got me sucked into those those scenes with the four friends. Um, you know, this film is obviously going for like a 1980s American graffiti vibe in the sense of just like these kids roaming around the city and and uh and I really I, I thought they did a really good job of showing like a 1980s Denver. <laughs> like this 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 felt to me very very full on Denver. And and that's how, Denver is not the most this no offense to the people in Denver, God love them, but I've been there a couple times. It is not the most distinct city. It's not like if you're going to New York or you're going to Vegas or you're going to some place like that. It's just so this film I thought did a good job of highlighting Denver, particularly, you know, with the production design in the late 80s. That's funny you say um, your your thoughts about capturing Denver. I've never been to Denver, but like everything I've ever heard about it, it sounds like a swell place. So the idea that like these kids react to it, like you know, uh, like you know, we got to get out of this town. Like I'm still stuck here. Is and maybe that is you know specific to being there at that time and place. But I was kind of blindsided, like wow, like I've I've only ever heard really nice things about Denver. Like, and 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 also it seems like you know has a cool like you know awesome like gay nightclub scene in the late 80s like has enough smiths fans that there's people just like biking around listening to the smiths like i i i, I they do ultimately kind of come around to sort of showing off um some of the not so welcoming sides of denver and i think maybe i could have used 
a little more of that, um, you know, Billy Ray, we weren't around for like a ton of the 80s. Sure. But it does seem to me like if you're going to make something said in 1987, it needs to be like maybe seven degrees harsher than this movie is. Like, and you know, not to say that this is a movie where the main characters are really exploring their sexuality in a lot of directions. And like, you know, I think you can do that and not immediately make it into a super dark film where they get, you know, um, abused for that. But I, I, I did feel like, you know, outside of the amount of cigarettes being smoked, there was a slightly sanitized quality to it that I, you know, it's part of the fairy tale, I think. But I, I, I was wondering, you know, if you talked to someone from Denver at 87, would it have just been like a little more foul mouthed? You know, yeah, yeah. Maybe some harsher pop culture thoughts than Molly Ringwald is lame and pretty and pink. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I I noticed that too. I mean, apart from like you have these sort of like your typical movie like bullies who are like picking on them because they're freaks or something. They end up getting chased down the street by some drag queens, which is actually a really fun part of the movie. Um, but yeah, it, yeah, it is a pretty it's a pretty watered down 1987. When, when you're aware of everything that was going on at the time, when you're aware of, like, the drugs and AIDS and all these things that were happening when this when this is taking place, and this is very sanitized. Um, it is, you know, and the, this, was, this was the thing I struggled with, and I mentioned this kind of in the opening with my question. Um, you know, the Smiths were so transgressive as a band they were, you know, they were rebels. They, they were, they were fuck the establishment. Like that's what they were as a band. You know, meat is murder. Queen is dead. This film is so not any of that. And my I guess my my what I walked away with, even though I did enjoy watching this film, was if you're gonna make a movie about the Smiths, and this and if this is so a movie about the Smiths. Shouldn't that movie reflect the band? Yeah. To some degree. That's what I walked away from. And this film just really doesn't reflect the band the way you would think. Well, and it gets into something that always really interests me, which is, you know, how do you pay homage and honor someone or something that was in its best form very rebellious like like how how do you go about honoring that without somehow kind of falling victim to putting it on the kind of pedestal that it was rebelling against and you know i think it's an especially tricky question with the smiths i mean like morrissey has got off in all kinds of directions in his later years and the movie like at one point there's a line that joe manginello has about like your heroes get older and they'll disappoint you and it almost seems like you know is it kind of obliquely addressing that and you know is it is it kind of tapping into just some kind of darker possibilities with doing something um you know in the spirit of the Smiths. And then it just doesn't really, you know, follow through on that. Like, I think that, you know, again, it's a hard thing when you're talking about the Smiths were just so experimental and so doing their own thing. You want to feel at least some of that from the movie. And this is truly, I think this is like a fandom style movie. And so you don't, you don't quite get any of that kind of transgressive quality that you're talking about. 
Yeah, yeah, you, you, you really don't. And I, obviously it didn't make me dislike the film. Like I said, I did enjoy watching it. I just kept thinking about what could have been. Right. Because I, I do love movies that are so in love with musicians, and specifically certain musicians. And we may get into a couple of those in my picks for the inspiration picks. But I'm really into that. Like that's my bread and butter. If you're if you're tackling the you know if you're tackling a band or a musician in the way that this film is, you've got me from the beginning. So like you've got me. You just got to follow through with it. And boy, I just kept waiting on this film to really you know hit me with something subversive that I wasn't expecting, and it just never quite went there. Yeah, it's very dreamy. And, and again, yeah. I wonder if some of that is just you know not sure what the process was for getting the rights to these songs the songs are like built very much into the movie in a way that i i actually do kind of appreciate maybe just because yeah. that's like kind of a rare thing to see and it feels like it's kind of getting more and more rare now um and even you know any movie based entirely around the soundtrack of an artist or one specific band i think there's just an interesting tonal quality that that achieves even when it's not always working really well like you know we kind of talked at the start about this about just being in a certain mindset and you know i think that the parts of this movie that are just kind of like people dancing in slow motion to the smiths really gets me into like a smith's frame of mind you know and i i sort of i appreciate that even if yeah as you're saying kind of narratively stylistically there's not the same you know there's not the kind of morrissey just upending norms right and left quality to it yeah, yeah, no, that's that. I I get that, and what you mentioned earlier about the scene in the radio station with Joe Manganiello making that comment about you know your heroes getting older. I absolutely think that was a a pretty direct sort of uh, Morrissey commentary there, um, and uh, and I of course I chuckled when that happened as well. And I agree. I like the way I like the way they incorporate the music into the film, and not just with the songs that are playing, but. You know, I was okay with the chapter headings. I was okay with the fact that they're actually working lyrics into some of the dialogue. Like, I thought that was all really clever and, and really interesting. So, like, I mean, they did some things that I thought that 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 worked like that. I just yeah. wish they had had the confidence to do a little bit more. The, the, there was a point where, when, when I realized that, like, a few lines of dialogue that I'd heard were from Smith's songs I recognized, I almost started Googling just all the dialogue because I, I honestly thought for a second is this an across the universe situation where every single line is from the smith it's definitely not that but no it did kind of i mean and in fairness i'm not sure across the universe is a perfect example of that maybe there's no perfect example of doing that but it did get me thinking like that is maybe more the kind of big swing i would want from a smith's movie is you know do something really out there stylistically. And as you said, this is through and through a hangout movie, through and through a one big night together movie. And, you know, that's that's just a slightly more, you know, old-fashioned framework for what the movie's trying to do. Yeah. Well, I've got a question for you, Darren. If you're if you're if you're having to give this film a ranking out of five stars, what would it be? Um hmm, out of five. See I'm out of five. I don't. I'm. I'm. I never use the the uh, star system. I'm so rigidly in the EW form. I think it'd be two and a half. I think there's yep. like good like like. As someone who likes the Smiths, I feel like it, it it gave me the Smiths music I love, in a like you know, pretty well packaged 
um, story. But, you know, it, it's just tough because, as you said, there's the version of the movie you kind of keep seeing that's doing something a little more interesting. And it's it's frustrating to not quite get there. Yeah, I'm I'm exactly where you are with the two and a half. That's exactly where I land. I I, I do everything based on letterboxes format. So, <laughs> so five stars is all that's in my brain these days. Um, <laughs> God bless letterbox. Um, but yeah, I, I I enjoyed the film. I thought it was a fun watch. If if someone is a Smiths fan, I think they'll get a kick out of this film. If if you're if someone's a fan of the Smiths, this is for them. I don't know. I don't know if people who are not Smiths fans are going to enjoy it as much. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'd, I'd be even intrigued to hear from someone who like loves the Smiths because, you know, I'm, I mean, I, I suspect that like even they would be kind of like, wow, like a movie entirely with some of the best songs ever in the soundtrack. Okay. Like, so this is what's happening with it. I, I don't know. I'd, I, I'd be really curious to know what someone who was one of these kids, like super diehard Smiths fan, like, you know, what that kind of experience was. Cause again, I just, I suspect like, you know, seven, seven digits on the dial, more harshness and weirdness and strangeness probably was what a situation like this actually looked like at the time. Yeah, I, I would think so too. But uh, if shoplifters of the world sounds interesting to you, it is currently available to stream wherever you find VOD releases and up next, Darren and I will discuss the films we believe inspired shoplifters of the world. First, a word from our sponsor. We are back, and uh, now is the time when I ask you, Darren, what the hell is going on in your world, and what's coming up that people can check out? Uh, I always doing some writing over at Entertainment Weekly. Uh, you can subscribe. You can also check out all the fun stuff going on at ew.com, our digital outlet. Uh, you can find me at Twitter. I'm uh, at Darren Franich. And uh, just lots of lots of TV coming up to write about. Lots of exciting things planned in the next few months over on EW.com. So uh, definitely swing over there and uh, see what me and all my colleagues are uh, writing about right now. Lots more pop culture now. A lot more things happening now, Billy Ray. The world's reopening, you know. It is reopening. I'm curious, what is one television series right now that you would recommend most highly and then what's the one that you're like skip it skip it um when is this dropping uh this will drop next friday so it will drop on the second third fourth fifth ninth april 9th gotcha okay um so i think i can say uh what i'm about to say well okay in terms of shows to check out um we just beat the drum for everybody uh if you're in the mood if you're listening to this, I assume you kind of like English things that are sort of dark. Um, so I'd really recommend everyone uh, check out the TV series Back, which uh, season two just debuted on AMC+, Plus, which is definitely not Netflix, different streaming service, worth checking out. I believe the first season is streaming for free on AMC+. Plus. Don't quote me on that, but I think it is. Um, really, really funny and sharp, dark comedy from the guys who made Peep Show, uh, the beloved uh, cult classic comedy. Those two guys star on the show. Um, it's essentially the talented Mr. Ripley in a provincial pub uh, where you have the guy running the pub, where his old foster brother returns after the father dies and seems to be kind of constantly gaslighting him. Very funny show, uh, has not been seen by nearly enough people, and I think it's so totally watchable. 
very watchable, very hilarious. Uh, so would say check that out. In terms of shows to maybe steer clear of, um, the new Joss Whedon series, The Nevers, is debuting later this month on HBO. Um, and uh, Joss Whedon's a somewhat controversial figure. Fun to talk about him in the same podcast where we talk about Morrissey. That yep. Equally yep. controversial figures in some ways. Um, I would just say, you know, I'm not a hardcore Whedon fan from the early days, though definitely watched his earlier shows and liked them a lot. Um, I think if anyone was hoping for, like, one last kind of magnum opus from him with this HBO series, uh, which he kind of left after working on for a while, um, doesn't quite get there. Kind of just, like, X-Men set in the 19th century. Um, Uh It feels like kind of a big swing for being another Game of Thrones and it's kind of just another example of how steampunk is never going to be cool. I'm sorry, steampunk fans. It's just not going to happen for you. Um, so I would say maybe steer clear of that. Yeah, that that holds no interest for me. I've seen <laughs> I've seen various things about it. It just those types of shows do nothing for me, for the most part. And and this one looks no different. I'll just watch the Connors instead. I I, I think that's probably pr- probably wise. You you will be less furious for sure. <laughs> well, yeah. If it's got Laurie Metcalf, she can't possibly make me furious. Um, well, now is the time when Darren and I curate for you your very own movie mixtape inspired by the film we just discussed, Shoplifters of the World. These are films we believe could have, should have, or did inspire the film, and no one knows if we're right except for the filmmakers. Now, were there a lot of titles that popped in your head for this? Well, there were in the kind of broad level of movies very rigidly inspired by one band. Um, And I will say there were like three movies that I thought of where I felt like these are almost one-to-one comparisons, but I have not seen any of those movies. So I, 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 I had to pick movies that to me feel a little bit more on the same cultural wavelength or sort of loosely inspired by. But I'm, I'm curious to see if you come up with any of the ones that to me seem like they are direct correlations. Well, what was your experience like? Did you come up with a lot or did you think of just a few very specific ones? Um, I had a lot, uh, but I ended up deciding on going more sort of tonally than anything else in terms yeah. of like just films that really feel like they have similar vibes. And, you know, I, coming from the same place in a lot of ways with different levels of execution. And there are, you know, I, I, there are some titles that were a little more obvious based on certain plot machinations in the film that were like, Oh, well obviously this one is one I would think about. But, um, I ended up with a pretty large list. It took me a while to cull it down, but, uh, I think I come up with some fun little films. Um, and I'll, I'll go ahead and kick us off. With yeah. What do you got, man? Let's hear it. Well, my first film is, um, it's another film about um, about a band, uh, specifically uh, the Stone Roses. Uh, so if folks don't know who they are, they're an English rock band that uh, were formed in 83, and they lasted for a while through the 80s and 90s. But the film in question is from 2012, even though it was released in the States here in around 2015, 2016. It's called Spike Island. And uh, this, the film is set in 1990, and it follows uh, five friends, and they're all guys, and they are enormous fans of the Stone Roses, and they are members of their own sort of rock band called Shadowcaster, 
and it's about two or three days before a stone the stone roses like legendary concert at spike island in cheshire and uh they are desperately trying to get to the show and get into the show so they can pass off their uh cassette tape to the stone roses via this girl that a couple of them know named sally and most of the film is about them trying to get to the concert and trying to get the tape in their hands and them trying to figure out if they're going to sort of commit to this sort of rock and roll lifestyle or if they're actually going to settle down get jobs maybe go to school you know do things that might actually further their lives in some way um it, it's I, I think this is a really fun film i think it's a really sweet film it, most people i mean it stars amelia clark she plays the lead girl in the film Le, the always incredible leslie manville is in the film as well um it's it's a it's a it's a kind of a even though it's about a, a rock band it's kind of a quiet simple little movie about five friends just trying to like you know get on with their lives they've all got varying degrees of sort of trauma going on in their lives one of them's dad is dying and uh, things like that it, it's it doesn't reinvent the wheel in any way shape or form but it was the first film i thought about when watching this because i think they're sort of spiritually in line with one another with what they're trying to get across and uh yeah spike island is a cool little movie that sounds amazing i've never even heard of it before but i definitely have to check it out um is this one that you saw uh um a while ago or uh... yeah i saw it in 2016 and i had heard nothing about it either it was just one of those movies that just ended up dropping at a limley and uh i ended up going to the pasadena limley to see it because this is kind of my wheelhouse like i am big into like british irish dramas like that's that's my jam and and i've always been a big fan of that and so anytime i see something like this i'm instantly like oh yeah i'm gonna check that out and so yeah and i did and i i just a you know a lovely little movie you know it didn't do big things but uh you know i was i was certainly into it and if you're a fan and you know just like if you're a fan of the smiths you know, Shoplifters is going to appeal to you. If you're a fan of the Stone Roses, this film has the same kind of thing going for it. Man, that sounds awesome. I'll definitely have to check that out. Yeah, it's a it's a cool little movie. And uh, yeah, I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. I don't think that it is. It's, it's a little difficult to find. Um, but, uh, it, you know, if you can track it down, however you track films down, I think it's... Oh, it's on Tubi. Watch it on Tubi for free. I will say... Tubi occupies a really special place in my heart because, like, first of all, if someone tells me a movie's not streaming, that actually makes it seem very appealing now. Like, I I don't know if you've experienced this, Billy Ray, but, like, I'm so yeah. far down the rabbit hole where I'm like, oh, like, well, if, if something's streaming, it's, it's probably not worth watching. Like, I, I only want something that is very hard to find. And Tubi, just, by, I mean, it's obviously a great place to watch movies, but that's the one exception I'm like oh okay it's on Tubi like okay that's that's the treasure map it's been found okay I, I, I can go check it out there <laughs> um, I, I just have to I just noticed this too and this is such a weird correlation but um, the director Stephen Kajak who directed Shoplifters of the World also directed a movie called Scott Walker 30 Century Man which was edited by the guy who directed Spike Island well there we go there Look we go that. Yeah, they come from the same world, so it makes sense that these movies would be somewhat connected. So, They're all in the club together. There we go. God damn it, I'm a genius. Now, <laughs> what's your first choice, Darren Franich? Um, my first choice is uh, less amazingly... Uh, uh, um, less amazingly unobvious than yours. 
Um, but uh, all the talk about the Manchester music scene in this movie um, really kind of brought me back to, I think, the movie that captures it the most. This is kind of a cheat because it's not about the fandom aspect uh, of that music, which is so important to shoplifters of, of the world. Um, but I think, like, if you watch this movie and you're kind of like, okay, give me the, like, unfiltered version of what that scene was like. Like, I've, I've seen it now with these nice kids in Denver. Like, get me into, like, the thick, nasty, you know, underground London, uh, you know, club experience. Um, then, then I'd hardly recommend checking out 24-Hour Party People. Um, yes. This is a movie from uh, early 2000s, kind of the breakout international performance by Steve Coogan, who was really well known in Britain before this. And thanks to this movie went on to become the defining really well known in Britain, not well known in, in America comedian of his time. Um, he plays uh, a guy who was kind of central to the Manchester music scene. And the movie is almost kind of a biopic in two and a half parts it starts off with um, focusing in a lot on the band Joy Division, who I, I, I assume if you like the Smiths, you probably also have like stayed up late nights crying to Joy Division. Like maybe I'm wrong about that, but very much a similar um, psychomusical headspace to be living in. Um, and then just kind of covers a broad span of time um, leading up to the creation of the band, the Happy Mondays, who get a nice little shout out in uh, in. Um, uh, shoplifters of, of the yeah. world. Um, and, you know, if you want that kind of, you know, slightly more punk, throwing out all the rules of movie making kind of movie, 24 Hour Party, Party People is definitely that. Steve Coogan, who's playing an actual historical figure, is breaking the fourth wall. We're skipping around in time a lot. Um, and yet, at the same time, the director, Michael Winterbottom, really captures just the kind of rawness of the music scene of that time. Um, you know, you have these incredible personalities who are all, I think, played by really great actors. Uh, um, you know, the lead singer of, uh, of, of, of Joy Division, he's, he's in the movie quite a bit. That's very moving. Uh, the guy playing Sean Ryder, the Happy Mondays, I forget his name, but that's an incredible part of the movie. Like, I think here yeah. in America, the Happy Mondays aren't known as well. And if you see this movie, you'll be like, I got to find out everything about these guys. It's super funny, um, you know, very much somehow kind of capturing um, the ambitions of that music while also just being a great sort of inside the music business, almost satire at times. Um, so we'll definitely check it out. Again, it's like, it's definitely much more, you know, if the kids in Shoplifters of the World are on the far side of the sun hearing the music and kind of falling in love to it, these are like the frequently nasty dudes who are making the music. So I think it's kind of a nice, maybe other side of the coin um, uh, version of the Manchester music scene. Yeah, this this I, I really really like this film a lot. It's basically just a love letter to Factory Records. Yes, yes. And um and, and you know and I'm a big Factory Records fan. Like I I think what they did was was pretty awesome during the time when they were actually going at it. Uh, yeah, this is a really cool little film, and I I like how it kind of, you know, it takes far more chance. Even though you know it's it's a different kind of film, it still takes more chances than Shoplifters of the World does in terms of like its narrative. And like the way it's presenting that narrative, this is this has more of that sort of um, anarchic feel to it, yeah. Uh, which which I like a lot. Steve Coogan is so good in this. Uh, this was like a lot of people. This was my first. Well, actually, this was my first. I think experience with him and Patty Considine. 
Uh, who, oh yeah, I mean it's it's like a murderer's row. Andy Circus, awesome, yeah, Andy Circus. Yeah, uh, you know, you got um, uh, Lenny James plays the co-founder of uh, Factory Records. Um, so okay, so yeah, Sean Harris plays Ian Curtis, who's the lead singer of, of Joy Division. He's great. Um, I don't know. There's just there's a lot of great people involved, and you know, as far as watching a movie that will make you love the music it's about, I always think Twenty Four Hour Party People is really high up there. Yeah, I yeah, this is a cool film, and I also want to point something else out. This is we just keep connecting. Uh, Chris Coghill plays a character in this film, uh, one of the members of the Happy Mondays, and he uh, wrote the film I just talked about, Spike Island. Okay, we're we're creating a whole elaborate <laughs> movies with gravy web here of of links. Like this is great. We'll have to full, now we have to find the like six degree link for every for every movie we talk about. I know this was this has been totally unexpected. I don't know that it's going to keep happening, but it was a it was nice while it lasted. <laughs> but yeah, this is this is a this is a really cool film. So uh, this is a good choice, Darren. Billy Ray, people at home can't see you, but you're actually sitting in front of two gigantic bat cave style monitors where you're just creating this whole elaborately all, all the connections are sort of being worked on by your ai computer it's very yes. impressive and yeah and i moved them with my hands <laughs> they didn't see that. that when are we getting that technology billy ray when i don't the, know when is the air hand uh, iron man minority report stuff happening if fucking 95 year old alfred the butler can work a goddamn touch screen surely we can get one for the populace <laughs> surely um yeah that was a great choice 24 hour party people uh that's gonna take me to my next pick which i do not believe has anything in common with any of the films we have discussed thus far um sometimes these little films will come along that you latch onto and that nobody else you know gives a shit about and you try to get your friends into it and they're just like nah nah and this is one of those films for me but I, I will ride hard for this film. Uh, it came out in 2008, uh, directed by uh, Peter Solit and uh, written by uh, Lorraine Scafaria. Uh, Nick and awesome. Nora's Infinite Playlist. Yeah, now we're talking, man. Boy, I love this film. Uh, I, I really, really do. Uh, you've got Michael Sarah, who plays a character named Nick, who is the bass player in a queer core band. Uh, he is really the only straight member of the band, and they call themselves the Jerkoffs. And uh, he he breaks up with his girlfriend. He's heartbroken. His friends are taking him on a night out to go meet this sort of legendary indi- this band called Where's Fluffy. So they're going to go watch this band. They're very they're very sort of like recluses, and they don't come out very much. Uh, then you've got the character of Nora, who's played by Kat Dennings. And uh, she uh, knows Nick's ex-girlfriend, but they don't really like each other. But she actually kind of knows Nick in a weird way because she actually found all of the mixtapes that he had made for his ex-girlfriend. And so she's had those and have been listening to him. So she knows him through that. It's basically about these two characters meeting and just spending this sort of uh, night together in Manhattan. Sort of walking around and listening to music and getting to know each other. And all with the intention that they're going to go see this band that they both love. And um, this is such a hangout movie, but it's a really fun hangout movie. It's a great cast. Besides those two, you've got Ari Grainer, who's always great. Uh, Jay Baruchel is in this film. It's just a really, really, I think, I think it's a great film in terms of watching 
two characters slowly get to know each other. They don't rush it. They take their time with it. Uh, they, they, it's it's there's not anything too crazy dramatic happening between those characters. There's some stuff that happened in the film that you know you have to have some stuff in there to keep it going. Uh, it ends with them at um, I think it's Electric Lady Studios is how the film ends. And I, I don't know. I just there's something sort of almost dreamy. I remember seeing this film in theaters. It was a really rainy, really cold day when I went and saw this film. I believe it was towards the end of the year. I think it was over the holidays because I remember like Christmas ads playing and a lot. All of that factors into how you experience a movie. And for me, it was just I really fell in love with this film. It, it's a it's a film that I'm always recommending to folks, even though you know I don't get a lot of uh, <laughs> I don't get a lot of thanks for that. I'm very frustrated by that. I, I love this movie. I, I've always kind of, similar to you, I've always kind of told people it's really good. I, I think it had the misfortune of coming out at a time when, I think that like the notion of like the hipster was starting to become a little bit of a, like kind of well-known enough to be parodied. And I think that like aspects of this movie just in the marketing material made it seem a little bit like it was just sort of the the movie version of that. And it's not. Like, you know, Kat Dennings and Michael Sarah are both giving really good performances at a time in their lives when, like, you know, they were still really, really young. Yeah. And I just think that, you know, both of them as the, at that awesome turnover point from being precocious, talented, teenaged actors to being grown-ups, like, you know, j- just that alone, I think, makes it... Um, worth seeing i i i think it's a great you know honest feeling teen romance in the midst of a lot of crazy you know one night on the town style stuff and then man like ari grainer is incredible she's so good in this you know you're making me realize like really what i want from any movie like this is an ari grainer character where just whenever you cut to them like the the like heart rate of the movie just goes way up she's so funny um you know is bringing so much to the movie so yeah i'm i'm i wonder if maybe just we're far enough removed from that time that more people at least our age might watch it and just kind of nostalgia might kick in a little bit i I do i do feel like it kind of captures you know we were not all living in like new york obviously and that aspect of it is you know a little bit um uh you know wish fulfillment maybe but but you know just just the way the kids kind of interact and the music of the time i feel like it evokes that really really well um you know in a way that kind of honors that era uh and you know just kind of is done in a really amusing way so i'm I'm glad you're beating the drum for it man i will also beat the drum for it yeah i definitely am beating the drum i also want to mention like i love this soundtrack as well it's a really cool soundtrack some some bands that i'm a fan of like vampire weekend submarines band of horses uh and then of course the score by mark mothersbaugh is also delightful um yeah i just i i i really really dig this film i hope more people check it out i think it's one of those films that people saw the poster or they saw the trailer and they're like nah it's a little too twee and so Maybe maybe folks will give it a chance. I hope they do, because it's a really cool film. Okay, we're up to your number two pick, Darren. 
I'm just like, now I really am excited to rewatch the movie. You're the first person I've met in, I think, like, ten years who <laughs> also likes Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. I think, in some ways, I think just the title is what puts people off, which is yeah. very unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it very well could be. And for some, Like, there was a movie that came out early this year called The Ultimate Playlist of Noise, which is another movie that I absolutely adore, but I feel like it suffered from the same problem. <laughs> Well, check that one out, Billy Ray. Is that is that is, is that as good as that Australian western that you played on our screen drafts, uh, westerns draft that I'd never heard of before? The one about Ned Kelly. Oh, true history of the Kelly Gang. Um, I really like Ultimate Playlist of Noise. You should check it out. It's on Hulu. I'll check it out. Um, my next movie. Again, not so much taking narrative inspiration as kind of going back to something we were talking about, which is. You want a movie about a band to not just play the band's music, but evoke the feeling of the band, evoke um, what they were all about stylistically. Maybe do that even to a fault where the movie, if you watch it honestly, clearly expresses the things wrong with the band, but does so in a way that maybe just deepens your appreciation for what they did right. Um, This is, again... Not a movie that's way outside the cultural spectrum of most people, but worth a rewatch. Oliver Stone's The Doors, which is a movie that is so doorsy, you can like roll it up in a joint and smoke it (laughs) and then like inject it and snort it and do all kinds of other things with it, draw blood from it and drink the blood in in some kind of Wiccan sacrifice. Um, This is the movie, of course, where Val Kilmer plays Jim Morrison. And the crossover to me, you know, again, this is not a movie that, you know, ties in with the kind of fandom element of Shoplifters of the World. But it does in the sense that in every second of The Doors, you can feel that Oliver Stone loves The Doors probably more than anyone ever has because he's the only guy who made this movie (laughs) like like he is so invested in the iconography of jim morrison he is so invested in the larger sense of how did the doors fit into the 60s um it's always very interesting reading interviews with him about the doors because almost as a rule the interviewee the, the interviewers assume that like you know, was he making a statement about, like, how the Doors had these faults, the Doors had these flaws, how, like, Jim Morrison had these flaws. And, like, he's aware of that, but he also loves Jim Morrison <laughs> and, like, loves the Doors. And what he does with this movie, how he builds the movie in its parts around the Doors' um, discography, how he brings their songs to life. Um, you know, the, the, the concert scenes are incredible and the kind of concerts that I just don't know if we'll ever see a narrative film with a concert of this size ever again. What Val Kilmer's doing as Jim Morrison, of course, is incredible. Um, but like to me, you know, the best parts of Shoplifters of the World are those parts that really just like bring the songs to life. And that's every part of The Doors, for better and for worse. I mean, like, you know, this is kind of the beginning of Oliver Stone's excess for the sake of excess phase. And, you know, the part of the movie where Jim Morrison is, like, sleeping with a journalist who then gets him into witch stuff. And, like, you know, that's, that is, like, you know, to me, approximating the, you know, eighth song on a Doors album that is just sort of, like, you know, 
ambient goth ridiculousness. Um, but, you know, I, I guess just like when I think about what I want from a band movie, I guess The Doors is kind of it for me. Like, and I know it's a divisive movie. Like, I, 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 I'm trying to gauge your reaction to everything I'm saying, Billy Ray, and I'm still not sure if you're going to be very <laughs> happy with this choice. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. No, not at all. I, I'm a big fan of The Doors. I haven't seen it in a very long time. But uh, I, I remember enjoying it very much. I, I do think it's one of Oliver Stone's more unheralded films. Um, and I just think he's... Oliver Stone is really good at biopics. Um, I, I think he's really good at it. I think, like, if you look at things like JFK and you look at Nixon, like, he's just... His visual style and his sensibilities sort of lend themselves to that sort of material and oftentimes they are boring and drab but you will never find that in an oliver stone biopic and i I love what he does here i think val kilmer is just such a perfect choice for jim morrison it's stupid like he's just so good it's stupid and um yeah i agree like this is a movie where you can clearly tell that oliver stone is an enormous fan of Jim Morrison and the doors. I would say more Jim Morrison than the doors. Totally. Yes. Yes. And, um, the way that stone almost fetishizes him in this film is pretty, it's pretty remarkable. Um, yeah, I, I, I super dig this film. Super. dig. And and even, and even, you know, to, to kind of further what you're saying, like, you know, I, I believe this is a movie where like the rest of the doors who are still alive, like Jim Morrison did not like it very much. And like, like, you know, it's it is you know a level of star worship that even you know it's funny in shoplifters of the world like you know given that just as from my casual awareness of the smiths i sort of do just think of them as like morrissey's band before he went solo i think maybe to the movie's credit it does seem a little interested in kind of painting in the margins a little bit of like you know we like all these guys equally and like yeah the doors is much more like jim morrison was like the beautiful rock antichrist star child of the world and then also you know Kyle McLaughlin as uh yeah Ray Ray Manzarek is there yeah like like I can understand why the other guys would have been a little unhappy with the movie (laughs) Um, but you know I mean I'm sure they earned I'm sure they earned some coin off of it yeah I would imagine as far as making their music look and sound as awesome as hell like you know mission very much accomplished with this film <laughs> absolutely absolutely oliver stone did them a a great service with this film is there any band or musician where you would want to see a doors level biopic for them like w- w- would that be bruce springsteen for you i mean it's tough he's he's just not as absurdly crazy a life story i think yeah no i don't know that it would be bruce springsteen frankly it would probably be the clash yeah that'd be incredible yeah i keep waiting for a really awesome clash film to come out and it just hasn't happened yet i know it will eventually uh but yeah probably be the clash that could be really a redefining musical biopic if it's done right because i mean besides besides the the level of quality across the board with music like that story and you know what happened to them i don't know there's a lot of interesting stuff to kind of play with there whereas again love bruce springsteen like you know there's there's a certain like rah rah we did it quality to his life story <laughs> like, yeah like you know definitely crazy stuff to overcome but also you know 40 years of general acclaim is you know a, a nice thing to have I'm not sure it's quite biopic material yeah 
Um, but yeah, give me a Clash movie. I'm there every day, twice on Sundays. <laughs> um, okay, this is going to take us to my final choice. Um, I'm going to kick this off by reading a section of a review from a critic named Leslie Felperin from The Guardian. And in, in reviewing this film, it was said that it is disastrous. Fatally flawed by a shoddy script and poor direction, like something made by the most ostensibly talented guy at art school, it's not funny or clever or even musically very interesting. It's just bad. And another review from Sarah Sam from Pitchport called it an egregious mess that romanticizes eating disorders. Uh, <laughs> all that to be said, they're both fucking wrong. Um, this is a film from 2014 it is a British film it is written and directed by Stuart Murdoch who is the lead singer of Bell and Sebastian and it features all Bell and Sebastian songs it is called God Help the Girl and this to me is a film like Nick and Nora that I absolutely adore Uh, It stars Emily Browning as Eve, who escapes from a psychiatric hospital where she is being treated for anorexia. And she goes to Glasgow and wants to become a musician. And she meets a guy named James, played by Ollie Alexander, who a lot of people might know from the HBO Max series It's a Sin. He's also from a band over there called Years and Years. But um, so uh, they meet each other. And then he introduces her to a girl that he's giving music lessons to, played by Game of Thrones' Hannah Murray. And the three become really good friends. And a lot of this film is about them deciding to form a band called God Help the Girl uh, with some local musicians. But the songs that that band plays and performs are, of course, Bell and Sebastian songs. All of the songs in this are Bell and Sebastian songs. There was an accompanying album that came out with this film called God Help the Girl. And uh, it's really about these three friends, uh, you know, coming together, falling apart. Uh, It's a very sort of hazy, loosey-goosey narrative, but it's kind of okay. Because this is an instance where, like I said earlier, where the movie Shoplifters of the World doesn't feel like the Smiths. God Help the Girls feels like Belle and Sebastian. Everything about this film is dripping with what makes Belle and Sebastian... If, if you're like me and think that they're an incredible band, which I do, they are one of my favorite bands, but they are one of those bands that you're either on board with them or you're not. And if you're not on board with them, you're going to think this movie is insufferable. If you are on board with them, you're probably going to find a lot to like about it. And it just reminded me so much of Shoplifters of the World and just kind of this sort of lackadaisical, lackadaisical easy breezy quality to it but also in just how much this movie loves the band. But of course it loves the band. It's written and directed by the goddamn lead singer of the band. So that would make sense. But it never comes across, it never comes across as pretentious to me in the way it could, considering he's directing it. Um, I don't know that he is a natural born filmmaker per se, but I think what he does manage to get out of this film really works for me. And I, I don't think it's, uh, I, I don't think it's nearly what you know those critical uh, assessments I read earlier make it out to be. I think uh, I would question whether or not they're fans of the band to feel that way about the film. It's tricky. I mean, like, well, first of all, critics are always right, of course. So yes, you know, I, 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 I stand by them completely, sight unseen on the movie. But um, it's definitely tricky with a band movie. 
Um, I, I, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, I used to have this like big book of like a thousand uh, New York Times movie reviews of like what, what the book when it was put together in the late 90s was like a thousand greatest movies, you know, the New York Times reviews from when they came out. Yeah. And it was great was like you would occasionally turn to a movie and at the time the critic would not have thought it was that great. And I'll never forget that like the review for A Hard Day's Night, maybe the single greatest like rock and roll band movie ever, certainly like the original defining rock and roll band movie. Like the New York Times review clearly written by someone who was like of the mind that the British invasion was a passing fad that indeed maybe rock and roll music was not really here to stay. And, you know, I, I think about that review a lot when I think about, you know, if I'm reviewing anything that clearly has a youthful sensibility now that I am a like old and sad person, (laughs) like you're just like, like sometimes the band's music, you know, is kind of the thing that is the attraction in the movie. This sounds great. I'll be honest, I've not thought of Bell and Sebastian since it was like a go-to on every like mixtape in like the mid late 2000s. So I'm kind of curious to check this out. Um was it uh were you a Bell and Sebastian person before this came out? Really, yes. Really I was a Bell and Sebastian person before this came out. I I I knew about this film well before it came out and, and premiered at Sundance. And so it was on my radar from day one. And uh, and I'm still an enormous Bell and Sebastian fan. I still think they are. I mean, look, they're hit, or mi- they're hit and miss with their music. Like some of the stuff is inspired and some of the best lyrics you're going to hear. And then some of it just feels kind of lazy and like they're phoning it in. And, you know, that's just that's just kind of the ebb and flow with Bell and Sebastian. Every band's got their, you know, eccentricities. But yeah, I, I, I think the big thing about it is it's just this just feels like a, you know, however long this movie is, you know, 90 minutes, you know, 100 minutes. This is like a 100 minute like music video for Bell and Sebastian, but with a really good narrative. Well, actually yeah. not even a good narrative, just really fun characters. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. OK, I'm, I'm very interested in this. I did not realize that it was from like the that the director was a part of Bell and Sebastian. So I'm, I'm very curious to check this out now. Yeah, he's the he's the lead singer and songwriter. So he is he is Bell and Sebastian, ostensibly. <laughs> this is making me feel like I have to finally get around to watching that Angels and Airwaves movie too. Oh uh, God. I've, I, was it was it called was it called Life or Earth or something? It was something I think like... it's called Life. Uh, <laughs> I, oh my God. Uh, What's it? Oh God! Hold on. Okay, this is gonna. This is gonna, love. It's called love. Love. That's that's what it was. Yes. I'm 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 a I'm a soft angels and airwaves like you know, uh, whatever one step down from aficionado is. Just because I did love Liquid eighty two when I was a kid and and still do now even. Actually, maybe Billy Ray when Blink announced that Tom DeLonge was no longer in the band, like. That might have been a moment where, even though I was, I think, in my like late twenties at the time, if me and my like high school friends ha- had still been around, we might have had a Shoplifters of the World style uh, Dark Knight of the Soul at that point. So maybe, maybe that's the band that uh, it would have been Blink, huh? Yeah, it would have been Blink. I don't know what that says about my musical taste. Nothing good, probably. <laughs> I would not have had that reaction to Blink One Eighty Two. Now, of course, I would have had it to Nickelback. Yeah, now we're talking. Now we're getting into it, Billy Ray. Actually, Nickelback. you know what? The closest I, I, you know, now that you say that, 
when Ed Kowalczyk left Live, the band Live, that was a big deal. That was it for you? That was a big deal. Yeah, that was a big deal for me because, I mean, how do you have the band Live without Ed Kowalczyk? It just wasn't possible. The more we talk about this, the more embarrassing things come to mind. I was very sad to learn that Kevin Cadigan had left Third Eye Blind because in, like, early high school... I was like the guy, I, there was not even like a click built around this. This was just me talking to people who were very dismissive of my musical taste, accurately so. But I'd constantly say, guys, Blue, the follow-up album to the Third Eye Blind album that everyone cared about, is even better. That, 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 was, that was the Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist drum that I was beating at the time. So, um, so let me just say, Blue is top ten rock albums of all time for me. Yeah. Right. I'm not even, like like I'm not even kidding like I think wounded I think deep inside of you I think slow motion is one of their best songs it's ever wall to wall hits man. yeah wall like like every like I but let's be clear I even like uh I mean I I I like in fairness I like most of everything that Third Eye Blind has done but out of the vein I think is a perfect album. Okay, interesting. You're you're going deeper down this rabbit hole than I am. Yeah, out of the vein. Yeah, their third album. I think it is a it is nonstop, like just catchy hits from top to bottom. Visit it. Because I, I didn't get into it at the time. Because again, I was so unhappy that Kevin Cadigan was no longer in the band. Yeah, I blamed I I I, I blame Stephen Jenkins, but it sounds like maybe. Maybe I was missing out. I'll, I'll I'll scope it out. Is it is it better than Blue? Is that what you're telling me? I to me it is. Wow. Okay, Billy Ray. This is not the conversation I was expecting tonight, but maybe it's the conversation that I needed to hear twenty years yeah. later. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't know that you realize how huge of a Third Eye Blind fan I am. Man, okay. Post pandemic, we're, we're going to see Third Eye Blind in concert. It's it's happening. Whatever Hell they're yeah. touring again. Hell yeah! I've seen him. I've seen him twice. I saw him with Semi Sonic, and I saw him with the Wallflowers. Oh, that's that, well. Both both times would have been awesome to to join up. Yes. Um, um, but yeah, that's that's delightful. That's delightful to know that. Um, okay, it's time for your third and final choice. Okay, so I I actually have like three choices here. One is very obvious. One is more kind of like is less on the like musical front and more just on the like narrative structure front and then one is a lot more on the musical front which one should i go for well i mean don't be an airhead okay you're saying you're saying don't go for the obvious one yes and also don't go for airheads okay um so my last one uh you know again I'm just going to skip it over the, 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 the whole fandom thing. I think you covered that pretty well with Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. I'm going for something that, like, just maybe in terms of, like, the misfit quality gives me something that I think Shoplifters of the World was going for and didn't quite get. Um, I'm going for, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. Okay. Um, which is a movie that different kind of music um you know this is the movie that stars very young very badass diane lane uh who forms a uh um uh kind of runaways-esque band with her friends one of whom is a very young equally badass laura dern um the movie itself is a lot of kind of you know funny awesome 
romantic, weird, uh, you know, music business stuff where they kind of get picked up. Um, they they meet up with a band where the front man is a uh, young, nominally, but still kind of Ray Winstone looking Ray Winstone. Um, movie's a hoot and a holler. It's incredible. But the reason why I call it out is because um, I think maybe, as I mentioned earlier, the thing I was missing a little bit from Shoplifters of the World was just like a slightly spikier, you know, these misfits aren't just dreamy. They're like genuinely upset with the world that they inhabit uh, vibe. And like, you get that from the sneer, the total disregard for the world around her that Diane Lane is rocking in, in Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. Um, it's just kind of like this fearsome, tough teen performance that... You know, I almost don't know if you could get this from a teenage actor today because I have this like half-baked theory that teenagers today have just kind of lived their life a little bit more on camera. So they're just a little bit more comfortable with a camera, which I think can create maybe better teen performances than we used to get. But like nothing like what Diane Lane is doing in this movie. It is like an all fire performance all the time when she gets on stage and says like, you know, you all don't like me because I don't put out. Like, it's just, like, incredible. I believe the movie is finally streaming now after being kind of hard to get for a while. Um, but in terms of being just, like, another look at, like, 80s misfit youth pushed to a way different extreme. Again, this is not Smith-style music. It's a lot, um, a lot more in that kind of vein of, you know... Can they even really play the instruments they're playing, punk-style music? Um, but super, super cool movie, and one that's definitely worth watching. Less on the dreamy side, more on the, like, punch-you-in-the-face-with-its-youthful-sensibility side. Is this one that you've seen, Billy Ray? Oh, um, so I guess you don't listen to the Screen Drafts podcast, Darren, because, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains is a film that I have been... Uh, on the megaphone about for a while well i know it came up it, it did finally come up on the uh on the fake music uh, yes draft, right yes yeah, okay. it did yeah i i love this film um i've been a fan for a while i actually had a vhs copy of it when i was younger much younger that's how i was exposed to it and it's been yeah like you said notoriously hard to find ever since um you know directed by lou adler what a crazy fucking life he led um and uh, shot by the amazing Bruce Surtees. And let's let's also make the connection from uh, one of the members of the band, The Looters, is uh, Paul Simonon from The Clash. That's uh, right. The bass That's player. That's right. I forgot it, about that. Okay. And it also features Steve Jones and Paul Cook from Sex Pistols are in that band as well. It, it, it's all connecting together here, yes. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I love this film. I think, it, I think it's phenomenal. I think it's one of the best films about musicians ever made. Um, and I think so much of that is in the performances. Diane Lane, Laura Dern, Christine Lottie is so good in the film. Uh, Ray Winstone. I can't, who, who, when Ray Winstone was young and sexy, what? Okay, yes. I'm, I'm now recalling you mentioning this on the Screen Drafts episode. And yes, he is... And in giving an incredible performance in the movie. He, he, he's definitely, like, like, when I first saw the movie, 
it literally was almost as if someone had traveled through time and put young Diane Lane and young Ray Winstone in a romance together just to mess with me. But it's very, very entertaining performance. Yeah. And a great screenplay uh, by Nancy Dowd, who, you know, won an Oscar for coming home. Also did some work on my favorite film of all time, Ordinary People. Did some uncredited work on that film. Um, yeah, I, I love this film. This is a great choice. I thought it could conceivably come up. It was on my short list, but I, I, di- I didn't quite put it on there, and I don't really know why, uh, because I do adore it. But uh, any excuse for folks to check, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains is a good one. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely cheating in all of mine because they're all about bands actually performing. There is no cheating. There's no cheating. Well, it's also but, broad. But, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm very aware that, like, you know, the thing that um, Shoplifters of the World is trying to do is evoke the spirit of the band, you know, yeah. in the sort of everyday life. This is why, to me, Nick Anora's, I think, is the one that I'd really push people to because that's really, like, getting at you know, how does this music kind of enter into your life and become something you're kind of fascinated with? And, you know, that's even though there is band stuff in that movie, it's more about the kind of kids' interactions, which really hard to create that on screen, I think. I mean, even something like Dazed and Confused, where the soundtrack is really key, you know, that's not really about any of those bands in, in, the, way that, in the way that those movies are. Yeah, for sure. And... um you know, Dazed Days and Confused is actually a film we'll probably talk about when we talk about uh, the films that didn't quite make our list. But as for the films that did make our list, if you've got 15 hours to kill, your movie mixtape would look something like this. It would start out with uh, Shoplifters of the World, Spike Island, 24-Hour Party People, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, The Doors, God Help the Girl, and Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. That's a pretty great playlist. I mean, wall to wall, like very exciting uh, music to get into. Um, maybe in some kind of altered state at some point in that fifteen-hour period. I don't yeah, know. I'm not gonna... I think for the doors, maybe uh, get a little <laughs> fucked up. The doors almost doesn't require it, really. <laughs> um, what were some of the films that did not quite make your list? I had a couple. Obviously, Airheads was yes. one that I thought about because it's obviously taking over a radio station at gunpoint. I mentioned American Graffiti earlier. That was another one I thought of. Days and Confused was one I thought of, sort of the ultimate hangout film. Uh, so that that one popped into my head. What were some of the ones that you didn't quite put on there? Well, you mentioning American Graffiti early made me decide not to do that one, even though it was on my list, because I was like, oh, yeah. man, this is so totally uncreative of me to mention it. But definitely the defining you know people hang out overnight and even the notion of the radio being the kind of greek chorus yeah um you know center of you know the 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 spine of the movie being the kind of radio stuff um that's obviously the big spiritual um predecessor here um but uh, yeah my other one which to me is sort of just of my youth the defining hangout at a party movie uh, can't hardly wait. Yeah, we've talked about before elsewhere. Billy Ray, um, you know, I think that in terms of just capturing with lots of awesome young actors, all kind of in their you know teen movie prime. In terms of capturing like just the ebb and flow of a night out at a party, I think can't hardly wait. Just does it really well in a really funny way. You know. I think that even um, 
what it does in a way that I think could be kind of underrated is, you know, it is kind of about these high school students the last time they're all together. And it kind of pushes all of them out of their comfort zone in a way that, you know, I think, you know, reveals dimensions of their character as as the movie goes along and does so in a really funny and, you know, very ridiculous 90s way. So, I'd you know, I feel like everyone's probably seen Can't Hardly Wait, but definitely worth rewatching. I feel like that's one that um, certainly captured a lot of things in that period that uh, hold a very memorable place in my heart. Yeah, you know what? What's weird though is I don't know that it as many. I to me, can't hardly wait. Is such is so in my zeitgeist. It's insane to me that there are so many people, especially you know, folks who are younger than me, who have no clue what that film is. I, it seems as if in general, even like in the kind of teen films of the turn of the century. Can't Hardly Wait was kind of on the earlier end of that. And so I feel like sometimes it gets a little bit left out of that conversation, uh, which is too bad. And then three more I want to just mention, which is kind of like, these are the films I have not seen, but I gather they are like almost exactly on the same thread as Shoplifters of the World. Uh, But Detroit Rock City, Blinded by the Light, and I Want to Hold Your Hand, uh, respectively, Kiss fans, guy who loves um, Bruce Springsteen, and Beatles fans. <laughs> like I, I think, like I don't know if you've seen any of those, but from from my understanding, I think those are very explicitly kind of in, on a similar plot structure level. Yeah, I've seen all of those films. Um, I, I I really enjoy Detroit Rock City, and I, I like you know uh, want to hold your hand. The film, weirdly, the film of there that I like the least is Blinded by the Light. And even though it is about my God, my God on Earth, Bruce, Bruce Springsteen, um, only because I just didn't feel like they did enough with it. They didn't do enough with his music and his songs in that film. Um, I like some of what they do with it in the sense of like in that film, you know, you've got him sort of lip syncing and dancing to the music while the lyrics are being projected on the walls in London. Like, that's really creative, and that's really, like, an inventive sort of way to do that. So there are moments that are really great, but I just didn't feel like I did enough with Bruce's songs. I'm too I'm too close to Bruce. <laughs> this will be the same issue when they finally get around to making the Third Eye Blind biopic, Billy Ray. Oh. You're just going to be like, I'm, I'm too close to this. I'm too close to this material. <laughs> and the name of it's going to be Out of the Vein. <laughs> Out of the Vein, the Third Eye Blind story. Fair enough. Fair enough. I do think that wounded would also be a good name for it, but but we, we can we, we can leave that to the eventual filmmakers to decide. Um, it's so funny watching. Uh, I don't know if you follow the latest phenomenon of the Eve Six Twitter feed. <laughs> no, what's going well, on there? Eve Six, their Twitter feed has just blown up during the pandemic. Like the lead singer posts like a thousand posts a day. And they and he's beca- it's become huge. Like they've become huge again because of this Twitter feed. And all of the, all it is is basically is him like throwing so much shade on all these other contemporary bands. That's hilarious. And he they have this ongoing feud with Third Eye Blind. Eve Six does, and it's just <laughs> really funny. Like it's watching him post is insane. Like he'll just drop shade at all these different bands. It's, it's so great. Like you have to follow the Eve Six Twitter feed. It's so funny because to me, one defining thing about that era is that like 
unlike in the 60s and 70s, it never really felt to me like these were bands who were in direct opposition to each other. So I'm actually, yeah. I'm actually, it actually really enhances my enjoyment of them to think of them as having these like deep seated rivalries. Oh yeah, but it's just like he'll tell random stories, just like just like oh, remember that time that the lead singer of Semisonic almost choked to death on a rib? Like it's just <laughs> weird shit. Like I just made that up, but like it's kind of the similar stuff like that. It's just like hey, he's got all these insane stories of all these like late '90s, early 2000s bands. It's just glorious. I, again, again, that's that's an era that I'd love to see explored way more on film. So maybe, yes. maybe, maybe like the Eve Six Twitter feed could be the next like Zola Twitter feed. Let's 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 start. Let's get a twenty four on this. Let's get the film um, adaptation going. Or maybe we'll get a like an Angels and Airwaves love style film, but maybe more about Everclear. <laughs> I mean that that would work for me. I, I I'd be sort of interested in, in that. I mean, you know, listen, Billy Ray. Now we're just like naming names of bands that people will not enjoy us for talking about. But like, where's the Smash Mouth biopic? That's what I want to know. Like, like let's get like you know, Astro Lounge writes itself, man. I, I think I think the uh, the Smash Mouth uh, biopic is in the same box of scripts as. Um, as the Sugar Ray biopic, as the Flies biopic. They're all there. They're all there struggling to get out. Wow, Pete, we've name-dropped a lot of really amazing bands tonight <laughs> during this episode. Um, that's glorious. Um, wow, uh, we got through that. This was great. I feel like definitely got to talk a lot about... Um, you know, good movie musical movies about rock music, movies about the kind of love of rock music. Um, you know, a lot of like an, an interesting choices for people to uh, um, pick from as they pivot off of Shoplifters of the World. Yeah, I think I think it, I mean it's it's pretty specific picks, but I think it's also pretty broad, at least in the way it tackles the music and and the bands and stuff like that so i think it does give people a lot of different options to choose from i'll let i'll leave it up to the folks at home to decide what order they want to watch these films in uh i would say that you definitely uh don't want to save the doors for last (laughs) i would say maybe like watch save ladies and gentlemen the fabulous stains for right after the doors when you just need like a real shot of adrenaline <laughs> like and i i love both those movies quite a bit but like the doors is definitely a slightly more ambient movie <laughs> i would i would certainly agree with that um well thanks for being here darren thanks for joining us for this these shenanigans Thank you for having me, Billy Ray. You are truly the brown gravy of the podcasting world. Wow. That might be the nicest thing anybody has ever said to me on this show. <laughs> um, but some quick housekeeping. Uh, dropping April 13th is our special roundtable on the overlooked performances of 2020 with Drea Clark from the Who Shot you podcast, Steve Hernandez from the Views from the Vista podcast, and filmmaker Jeremy Hirsch, whose film The Surrogate was featured on an earlier episode of this podcast. Uh, if you had to throw one or two overlooked performances into that mix, which ones would you uh, sort of run up the flagpole? These are overlooked performances of 2020 you were talking about? Yes, of 2020. Overlooked performances. Um, well, first and foremost, 
Kristen Stewart in Underwater. I will continue to shout out how awesome she was in that unjustly overlooked, um, very fun movie. You know uh, what? Uh, you know William Eubank, who directed that film. You know what else he directed? What's that? The Angels and Airwaves movie Love. <laughs> really? Yep, he sure did. I, th- First of all, Billy Ray, your Batcave computer is firing on all cylinders right now. And second of all, I, I literally might watch Love tonight. Like this is this is like I'm I'm. It's almost like this whole podcast has 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 been about me accepting that I might be a big Angels and Airwaves fan. So I'm there. Um, other one, kind of in a similar vein, uh, but look, this movie came out at a really weird time, and I think. It totally got thwacked by history in a lot of different ways. A lot of people don't like the movie. Those people are all wrong. But even people who don't like the movie have to admit that the lead performance is great. So I remain very unhappy that a lot of people have not seen Betty Gilpin's awesome performance in The Hunt. It is not a movie that people uh, generally enjoyed. Like I said... Came out at a weird time. Last big film released before all theaters shut down. Very much a harsh political satire at a time when I think people were just not in the mood for anything like that. All that aside, if you want just like a tough, kick-ass, funny action hero, what Betty Gilpin's doing in that movie is so fun and so exciting. And I think she's going to go on to do bigger and better things. So we definitely want to bring that performance up for sure. Yeah, I I, lo- I actually really liked that film. I was I was one that enjoyed it, and it is primarily for her. And I liked her on Glow, but I, I, I was never, like, just completely wrapped up in her, but she was so fucking good in The Hunt. Like, she's so great. Like, she, she carries does, that film. She does so much, you know, in the first part of The Hunt, when there's a lot of stuff other happen, there's so much other stuff happening, and she is, like doing like the strong silent mysterious person i don't know to me that is a full bore you know eastwood style commanding your attention by doing as little as possible style performance then she does more stuff after that that is very different so yeah i i I don't know i just think that like as an acting tour de force there's a lot going on with her in that movie um, and yeah, as you said, great on Globe, but this is a very different kind of performance. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this Overlook Performances episode because I'm going to see how many performances from Barb and Star I can get on the list. Yeah, okay, baby. And, uh, and then I'm going to throw something in just random, like like Ben Foster as Lance Armstrong in the program. <laughs> and just see if they'll allow it in a 2020 discussions. Probably not. Um, please uh, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts because that's a cool thing to do. Don't forget to check us out on Letterboxd for all of our fabulously curated movie mixtapes, including this one. We are all over the socials at, at Movies with Gravy. Again, thank you, Darren Franich, for being on the show. Thank you, Billy Ray, for having me. Great conversation. Now we know we're we're in that that special uh, hunt Nick and Nora's third eye blind Venn diagram of of fandom. So that's that's where we live, and everyone else is, is welcome to join us here. Yeah, uh, the view is great from up here. Come join <laughs> us. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun. And now for an interview with the writer and director of Shoplifters of the World, Stephen Kijak. Check it out. 
Stephen, thanks for taking a few minutes to chat with us. Absolutely, my pleasure. Um, I'm curious, right off the bat, what and maybe the answer is in the film itself but what was the band or artist you loved as much as the characters in your film love the smiths was it the smiths it truly was but i, I gotta say i had a, a, a much broader palette perhaps but but then again the kids in the film uh, you know you can just see from the art direction uh and some of the style choices they make uh they're they're a pretty well-versed uh bunch of kids they, they've got they've got quite sophisticated record collections. And and would you say that you also had a sophisticated record collection when you were that age? It's gotten better. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> it's gotten much better. Uh, but yeah, you know, I actually, I got turned on to jazz quite early. I had a teacher who was really into uh, bebop uh, in high school and got me to write record reviews. And, but you yeah, know, I was you know, your typical new wave connoisseur. It, it wasn't, it wasn't that sophisticated. Uh, took a while to uh to cultivate a, a broader palette yeah it, that happens sometimes um so you're known primarily for having directed you know lots of music docs scott walker rolling stones backstreet boys leonard skinnard uh i'm curious was there ever the impulse to just make a documentary about the smiths or was a narrative feature sort of always the plan well this you know this took a good 10 or so years to do um so, you know, in that time, I mean, my God, I must have made at least six movies, you yeah. know, six documentaries. Um, no, I feel like with, with this, uh, given, given like uh, just how contentious things became internally with the band and just, you know, current tensions uh, the way they are, I think doing a doc would have been a lot more heartbreaking and potentially <laughs> just impossible to pull off. Uh, whereas something that really just celebrated the fandom yeah. and was more of a period piece and looked at a moment in time, uh, it was a lot more uh, attractive, you know, based on kind of an urban myth. It just it had a lot of elements that were attractive to me. I was looking to get back to narrative uh, using music as a bridge. So, uh, you know, and doing it with something that was really close to my heart uh, really seemed like a great way to go. Yeah, I mean, if you're doing a documentary on the Smiths, I mean, what can you, what can anyone expect from sitting down with an interview with Morrissey these days? I mean, between that and the lawsuit that you know flamed out between the other two members, it just, I just, you know, it, it could be explosive. It, it just, but I'm, I'm sure it would just end in tears. Yeah, yeah. So you said it's been like a ten year journey to get this thing made. So how did the idea for it sort of take shape over those ten years? Um, well, it was uh, the woman on the, who has the story credit on the film, Lorianne Hall, uh, a friend of mine who grew up in Denver, had remembered the incident or, uh, you know, had remembered the, you know, the, the myth in a way, right? The, yeah. the famous holdup at the radio station that happened in Denver. Um, turns out it was like a year after the breakup, I believe. It was actually 88, not 87, when a young man... Uh, Troubled young man attempted to hold up a commercial radio station uh, just outside of uh, Denver uh, to force him to play the Smiths all day at gunpoint. Uh, but he turned himself in before it actually went down. And uh, but, you know, he, he got arrested. He got taken away and it made the paper. Uh, and these kinds of things just take on a life of their own. Right. And became this apocryphal story of the, the hold up. Uh, so yeah, between that and just you know wanting to get back to telling uh, scripted stuff and and being interested in dabbling in 
some memories of the eighties and growing up small town and new wave. Uh, it just kind of came together, you know, we kind of broke the story together and I threw some of my kid, my, my memories in the pot and we just kind of set them loose on one wild night out in Denver. Well, and speaking of that, you know, the, the movie is set in Denver, but I believe you shot is, is it right in upstate New York? Upstate New York. Yeah. Troy, the Troy Albany area, which is, if you know, if you've been there is a beautiful like time capsule uh, parts of it just look like frozen in time. You know, I think they shot pieces of, um, Oh gosh, what's the Scorsese film? A- age of oh God, age of innocence. Age of innocence was yeah. shot up around there. Um, you know, these gorgeous brownstones and then you have just bleak sort of industrial abandoned areas and, uh, you know, very like 70s period suburbia, um, yeah. this gorgeous sort of split level ranch house. I mean, it's, we really, you know, it, it, there, it, it, it looks, there's a lot of pieces that look somewhat similar to parts of the uh, Denver suburbs. And it was more about a state of mind more than an actual place to sure. be honest, but it really fit. It really felt cool to shoot there. Were there any specific sort of challenges in turning uh, upstate New York into Denver? No, I mean, we didn't like, you know, have to like green screen in mountains or anything. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, everything was mostly at night and, you know, just your generic old liquor store and some, you know, the houses and part, the party house and all that stuff. I mean, the architecture was just really of a period, you know, it was the 80s. So everything was still like, you know, you have remnants of the 50s and the 60s and 70s it just it was a crumbly old place so uh and kind of a bit of a you know blank slate we could just paint into yeah so it wasn't one of those office situations where you're trying to turn uh, los angeles into scranton new jersey oh oh god no <laughs> or scranton Pennsylvania. no no and a lot of the reference all the referential things like names of places and things are actually just cribbed from kind of smith's mythology so it's like this hybrid place I mean, it is really a total little like musical metafiction. It's just quotes upon quotes, right? So it's quotes Denver. But for me, I always kind of say it's really like my small town. It's really like, you know, suburban Massachusetts grafted onto this idea of, you know, Denver or just middle America. It's really any suburb in in the American 80s uh, with, you know, uh, hints and uh, brushstrokes pulled from Smith's lore from, you know, the things that they were influenced by, like yeah. British, British cinema of the fifties and sixties, um, the iconography of the album covers and just photography of that time. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a hybrid place. Yeah. I, I'm curious, what was the casting process like for this film? There are a lot of familiar faces in the film and, you know, I haven't seen, I don't think I've seen Helena Howard in anything since Madeline's Madeline. So I'm just curious, what was that process like? She's in a fabulous series on Amazon called The Wilds. That's right. That's out. right. She's, she's brilliant. Um, yeah, it took a long time. I and mean, the cast came together and fell apart at least three times. I think, you know, if you Google it, stupid Google still has like three casts ago, people popping up, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know, they are not in this. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it was, it just, we had a great casting team uh, off Yarrow Horn here in Los Angeles, uh, really good friends. Uh, it started off with Monica Mickelson, uh, was our first casting director who introduced us to Joe Manganello, who was uh-huh. kind of the anchored the whole project um, as Full Metal Mickey. And then him and his brother uh, came in to produce 
and have been our kind of ride or die ever since. Um, but yeah, it was your usual like, you know, auditions and then just, you know, a leaf falls out at the last minute and you just scramble to see who's kind of up and coming. And I, I think we, uh, Helena had just debuted at Sundance with Madeline's Madeline. And, you know, when you start talking about a young actress as like a young Jenna Rollins, you go, ooh, <laughs> yeah. must find out about that. Um, you know, and she was just fantastic. It was a real, real coup, you know, like she grew up with new wave, a new wave bomb. And, you know, her mom's best friend had followed the Smiths around on the Meet His Murder tour in England, you know. And <laughs> so she came to set with the, his uh, Smiths in Scotland tour program. You know, I mean, she felt it. She really, she really felt it, which really helped, you know, to have the lead have such a, a personal connection. Because not a lot of the kids at that age really knew much about the music. Um, yeah. But we're, we're into it because they related to the relationships and the situations. Thankfully. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure, I'm sure this was aided by the fact that you've been so heavily immersed in the music world for so long, but what was the process like for acquiring the rights to all those Smith songs? It really wasn't as crazy as people might think. I mean, it, it, it just, it comes down to just working with uh, great music supervisors. You know, uh, we had one guy tee it up years ago. Um, and got us a very quick initial thumbs up based on an early draft. Uh, we knew we needed the music before we really did anything. So, you know, quick first draft and then went to try to figure out how we could acquire the music or if they'd even, you know, give us permission to, to do so. And uh, yeah, we're fortunate to get a, an early thumbs up from Morrissey Marr and then just spent the rest of the time trying to figure out how to pay for it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> 20, it's 20 songs. So it was really, the, the hard part was convincing. I mean, the hard part was raising the money. It was paying for it all. And, and doing the, just the technical work of clearing music and making the deals and, you know, getting it all to fit together. So, yeah, it, it, just, it just took a while. It just, it, uh, a film like this tips the economic scales of independent financing you don't normally have such a massive music budget so that was tricky yeah you know i know a lot of independent films they'll do if, especially if they're using lots of different tracks from different artists they'll go, kind of go the favored nations route and try to get deals mm -hmm. that way but when you're dealing with songs from just one band it can't be that <laughs> in my mind it just can't be that easy but it sounds like it wasn't as difficult as i thought well it was it was difficult in that it just well, like I said, the difficulty came in the, the financing and the negotiating of the actual music contracts. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. But, you know, we got a thumbs up to do it. And there just came a point when they're like, are you going to make this film or not? <laughs> like, we can't just keep hanging out, holding on to this catalog for you. You know what I mean? It just, yeah. we, had to, we had to pull the trigger at some point or risk losing it all. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was the harrowing part. Liz Gallagher's took took the reins of the music supervision and, and just kind of steered it for a good eight or nine years and uh, uh it's just a miracle we got it done to be honest uh well you did get it done and it's been released during covid and i'm curious what has that been like releasing a film during the pandemic very weird um i don't know this one it's just it took so long i'm so exhausted by it <laughs> you know what i mean yeah it's just Part of my attitude was just like, oh, just get it out already. You know, like I just want it out. I don't care how, where, when. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, it, it just 
landed on VOD, like everywhere. So, you know, you do your usual, you do the, you do the press, you do the interviews, everything's on Zoom. It, it's fine. It was great. The, the distributor did a great job. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's been popping up. Luckily, some cinemas are opening up. So we're yeah. just kind of at the tip of, you know, some reopening, which is fantastic. Like the quad is playing it in New York. And there's a cinema, a Lemley in Beverly Hills, I heard, has it. And uh, we just went to the drive-in on Saturday night uh, down in Orange County here in, uh, in California. And uh, had a sold-out drive-in screening um, with, uh, you know, just everyone came out in their, their gear. All the fans were out in force. It was really cool. So it's been different, but, uh, you know, it's, it's out and the fans are eating it up. Yeah, that was my next question is what has the fan reception been? But it sounds like it's been pretty positive. So far, you know, I mean, the fans that are digging it are, are, are like they've got it on repeat. Like they have like a, like a mixtape or something. I mean, they, they're watching it over and over and over again. I'm getting messages like, you know, I'm on my fourth viewing, seeing all this stuff I haven't, I missed the first time or, you know, like it, it's, it's, it's working. It's a lot, yeah, people are really digging it. We're getting a lot of positive feedback. Yeah. I mean, once, once I saw it, I looked to see if I could buy it on Blu-ray. So <laughs> mm, it's coming. I think we're going to do a actual physical edition. I know a lot of people don't do that anymore, but I think they're going to put one out and uh, there may be a, an official soundtrack uh as well not that i mean it's like everyone already if you if you like the smith you already have all the music so i don't know how we're gonna put a spin on it but uh something's coming i believe and, and not that and, and very relatively soon i think you can just do a, a soundtrack that is a smith song and then a heavy metal song and just just exactly yeah i don't know if we're gonna stick fuzzy on the soundtrack it might be like little bits of lyrics i mean a uh, uh, dialogue and things like that It'd be nice if we could stick some of the other tunes. Like we had a good Bransky B. We have a certain ratio yeah. on the soundtrack. Great old Boston 80s band, Big Dipper made it in there. Thank goodness. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's a cool package. Um, so so what are you working on? I mean, what's what's up next for you? Are you working on any more docs or? Um, yeah, we're putting a, a, we're doing something about Rock Hudson at the moment, actually. Oh. Uh, another 80s story kind of about rock and AIDS and that whole moment in history and how, uh, his kind of public admission of, of being uh, gay and, and having AIDS really changed the politics, changed the, uh, you know, the cultural and political conversation around it um, while looking at his whole career and like the Hollywood closet and all that stuff. It should be pretty cool. Um, so that's kind of in the works and just a whole bunch of other stuff, you know, it's, it's we're very busy. Um, hopefully things are opening up. We'll be, you know, back in the field in no time so uh can we expect a definitive david bowie documentary anytime soon you know what not for me i don't know <laughs> i think there there is something being done uh i think that is more around like some of his live stuff yeah i don't know that's a tricky one there's already been a series of of, of bowie docs you know five years five years and i think it was five more years or five years later or something like you know someone they, they've made a few for uh british television um Oh yeah, and no, I, I don't know. I think you could have a Bowie doc a year and, and still not exhaust the the narrative. So yeah, that would be amazing. Um, okay, so final question, and this is going to be an impossible question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What's your favorite Smith song? <laughs> impossible. Um, I'm going to always have to say how soon is now. I mean, it's the first one I heard. It's the first 12 inch I ever bought. Uh, it, it, the 12 inch appears in the movie. Um, 
Yeah, it's just it's you know that's the defining moment. You know, I think it's I think it's that first one that you fall in love with is uh, is the one that's always going to go deep. It's yeah. classic. It's timeless. Yeah, I'd agree. My 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 first was girlfriend in a coma. So that's, oh, right on. That's kind of in, <laughs> that's kind of inherently mine as well. So I totally mm. understand that. Um, Stephen, thanks so much for chatting with us. You bet. My pleasure. If you like what we're doing here on Movies with Gravy, the fastest, easiest, most awesome way to support us is via Patreon. You can do so at the $1, $5, $10, or $25 level, and you get all sorts of awesome perks, including weekly Patreon-exclusive mini-reviews, special interviews, early access to bonus content, and voting power to choose some of the films we discuss on the show. Visit patreon.com movieswithgravy and sign up and help keep us doing what we're having an amazing time doing. That's patreon.com slash movieswithgravy. And make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other folks know you like us. You can follow us across the socials at movieswithgravy, and we hope you do. Movies with Gravy was conceived of, produced by, and hosted by me, Billy Ray Bruton, and the theme song is Country Roses by Flannery Miles and me, Billy Ray Bruton. And remember, movies are great, but they're better with gravy. Y'all come back now, you hear? Country roses, blessed songs, mommy's here.